that, listen to Hosea chapter 8, verse 4. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. The secular world in which we live is full of idols. And as Dan said earlier, idolatry is the worship of the creation rather than the creator. Money, power, being a celebrity, science, sex, political leaders, security, fun, entertainment, beauty, exercise, sports, medicine, feelings, being popular, the list goes on. My concern today is not primarily the culture. Do I want our society to worship the one true God? Of course. Do I wish that our culture would quit running headlong over the cliff to their own destruction? Yes. But my concern is for you and for me. Regardless of what occurs in the world around us, God calls us to put away the foreign gods in our own hearts. We've been following the life of Jacob, and it is with Jacob, the entirety of Genesis so far, it is with Jacob at today's passage that we have the very first command to put away foreign gods. And in our passage today, it will seem simple. Jacob will give the command, it will be followed by the members of his household, case closed. But most of you know enough about the Bible to know that the case is not closed. The struggle to put away foreign gods is the struggle that seems to never end. It is one in which we struggle as Christians throughout our existence here in this world. So let me read the first seven verses of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, And the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, 
he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to them when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, oh, we'll stop right there for right now. We will go on to 15 later. Okay, so let's follow this uh, situation. God commands Jacob to return to Bethel. Now, if you remember, Bethel is the place where God had met with Jacob earlier, the whole Jacob's Ladder scenario, when he was running out of the land. And God had made promises to Jacob at that time. And Jacob, at that same time, vowed to God that if God kept his promises, that he would declare his exclusive loyalty to God. Not to any God, but to the God who actually appeared to him at Bethel. Now, the horrors of chapter 34, the story of Dinah, makes very clear that the fullness of God's promised blessing had not yet come. Jacob is indeed back in the land, but it is not yet a land of pure delight. And this raises the question, and it is the primary question in this text. Can God be trusted to bring about the fullness of blessing? Think about that question. Can God be trusted to bring about the fullness of blessing? Because if God cannot be trusted, if you do not trust God to bring about the fullness of blessing, you will inevitably be drawn to find some other source that you believe will bring you happiness. By the way, that is idolatry. God simply commands Jacob to go up to Bethel to make an altar. God is graciously nudging Jacob to worship him. To keep his vow that he had made previously. And this really is the first time in Scripture that God commands an altar to be made. There have been altars made previously, but they have been altars that were spontaneously erected because of just wanting to worship God. And thankfulness. But here, God actually commands Jacob, go and make an altar. God expects Jacob to worship him. And Jacob understands this. So just with this one statement, come and make an altar, Jacob then says, oh my goodness, I am coming to meet before my God. And so he immediately says in verse 2, to his household and all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So the first thing to understand is that putting away foreign gods is in the context of, of worship 
Jacob doesn't say, oh, you know what? I think I need to become a better person, so I'm going to get rid of my gods. Jacob wants to offer God pure and acceptable worship. And in order to do this, he comes to the realization that he cannot worship more than one God. All other gods must be put away. I hope that even as you prepare for Sunday worship, that a regular exercise would be to search your heart and to see, are there other things in my life that I give my devotion and allegiance to other than God? It should be a regular part of preparing for worship. And only in the, in the context of an ongoing relationship with God will you even be motivated to put away idols. It's not, well I should say, it, it is easy to miss over in this passage that Jacob comes to this conclusion that he must give his exclusive devotion to Yahweh only after he is convinced that Yahweh has been faithful to him. If If you're here today and you are not confident that God loves you and that he has your best interest in mind, that he is not only going to give you a little blessing, but he is going to make you fully and completely joyful and happy throughout all eternity, if you're not confident of that, you will not put away your idols. Said succinctly, commitment is the response of being loved. Interestingly enough, God has not even raised the issue of foreign gods up to this point. And then look at how Jacob describes God. He is the God who answers me in my distress. He is the God who's been with me wherever I have gone. If Jacob doesn't have this picture of God in his mind, he doesn't even have a desire to put away his foreign gods. Consider your own heart for a moment. And I know in a church, we're always called to think of God as the one who's good and gracious and beautiful and all these things. But in your heart, honestly, would you describe God as a giver? Or a taker. In your mind, does he only want to take from you? Or is he the one who gives to you? Now, nowhere 
is the fact that God is a giver more powerfully demonstrated than at the cross. That's why we sing the hymn, Jesus, keep me near the cross. If you're ever tempted to think that God is more of a taker than he is a giver, go back to the cross. Remind yourself that the Lord Jesus Christ willingly accepted his Father's plan and gave his very life for your benefit. God is a giver, not a taker. Now, why is it that we often think that God is a giver? Because he does often give demands of us. Says to you, you must worship me and me alone. But it's not just the commands that God gives that makes us wonder whether he is a giver or taker. It is our experience of pain and suffering and evil in this life that breaks down our trust of God. I have done enough counseling over the years that those who have been deeply hurt could be by another church member but it could be by others outside of the church it doesn't matter they ask the question how could God allow this person to hurt me so much if he is a good God how can this possibly be and those who have been hurt enough may struggle throughout their entire life to actually trust God heartbreaking. Unless there is some way that we can synthesize the pain and the suffering that we experience with the goodness and love of God, I don't think we will ever put away our false gods. One of the blessings of being a pastor that studies the scripture for a living is that on the pages of scripture I am over and over again reminded of how good and faithful God is. Now, that being said, this this need to know and, and experience in some sense the goodness and faithfulness of God If you are here today and you are calling upon the name of Jesus Christ and you are in a covenant relationship with God, you need to also understand that that being in this relationship with God puts you on a direct collision course with any idol of your heart. See, the command to put away false gods is not an option in the Christian life. To live in covenant relationship with him demands our exclusive loyalty to him. There can be no other higher love in your life than God. In the context of trying to put away foreign gods, God also says, or Jacob also says, that we need to be cleansed, and to change our garments. Now, don't 
take this as, oh, see there, we can actually bring about the cleansing that we need. No, of course we all need the blood of Jesus Christ. We all need the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. If we're ever to be clean and ever to have the righteousness of Christ applied to us, those sorts of things are, are very true. But also understand that just because of what Jesus has done does not negate the fact that you have to actually consciously repent of your sin and turn from it. And that's the, the context of changing your garments and cleansing your sin. is just in the context of what we normally call repentance. And you engage in some sort of ceremonial washing, simply similar to our sacraments today of baptism and communion. The fact of the matter is you are not clean, and if you want to walk stand before God, you have to be made clean. And that's a, a basic principle that's going on here, and Jacob understands that. We're not really told about the specifics of this ceremonial washing or the changing of the garments. None of those things are really spoken of in this passage. They, they are issues that come up later in history, Israel's history. But we are told something very interesting that they, they take out the earrings in their ears. Now that's not because earrings are innately evil, but there were Earrings that were worn as a symbol of your allegiance to a God. And those needed to be gotten rid of. As I read this the first time, I've been like, well, I haven't even heard about foreign gods except for the ones that Rachel, household gods that she hid. Did they have a bunch of gods that they were dealing with? And it, they must have been. Maybe they, some of the women who were the widows of Shechem, maybe they brought some of these foreign gods with them, but there's not a lot of discussion on that. It seems in the passage that Jacob is really talking to everyone. He's not just talking to a select few. He's telling them all to put away their idols. And I find it absolutely striking that they all just say, oh, okay, and they just give them up. No problem. Sure. We'll give up our gods. And unless you understand the rest of the Bible, if this was all you had, you'd be like, okay, no more problem with idolatry. They got rid of them. We're going to move forward. And then you read, oh, Joshua, which we read in the scripture reading today. Why is it that that generation still needs to put away their gods? And then I find it very interesting, and then what do the people say in Joshua's day? Of course, get rid of the gods, no problem. Then, you, if you go down to 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel the prophet says the same thing. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. And then, verse 4, the people of Israel put away the gods, and they served the Lord only. But if they keep putting away the foreign gods, how come they keep coming back is my question. And then if you read Psalm 24, the psalmist seems to indicate that this is an ongoing issue with God's people. He says in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear 
deceitfully. So the question I have is, how is it that putting away your foreign gods on the one hand seems so easy, and on the other hand seems like an impossibility? Well, I think we need to take a moment and step back and try to understand what do we mean by foreign gods? Technically speaking, the Bible does not recognize any foreign gods. A foreign god is a a token, you make something, of a god that doesn't actually exist. So if you listen to Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have no mouths. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses that do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Jeremiah 10 calls idols like scarecrows in a field. Can't speak. They're stupid and foolish. So on the one hand, if you begin, say say you're a worshiper of these other idols, and then you come to recognize that God is the only true God, it should be just a natural reflex of your soul to say, oh my goodness, there's only one God and creator of all. I'm not going to worship any of these other gods at all. I'm just going to follow the true God. You know, if I was a Muslim, I worshipped Allah, I believe in Jesus Christ, I no longer worship Allah. That's just the way it works. If I'm a Hindu, and I worship any number of Hindu gods, and I become a Christian, I no longer worship my Hindu gods. Simple enough. But the Bible does not simply talk about foreign gods as non-entities. They're not just illusions in your minds. If that were the case, we would not continue to struggle with them. Psalm 106 says this, They serve their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. You see, behind foreign gods, behind idolatry, are demons. Now, demons are not gods. They are fallen angels. They are powerful created beings who have followed Satan in his rebellion to God. But they are not gods. And ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, Satan and his minions are constantly working to lure God's people away from God. Now, how do they do this? They make to you false promises. They tell you that you can have ultimate happiness apart from God. You remember the spirits, the serpent's tactics with Eve. You mean God won't let you have all the fruit in the garment, in the garden? God is holding you back. He doesn't want you to be truly happy. 
what kind of God would treat you the way that your God treats you? Take my advice, follow me, and you will have true blessing. And add to this, you have a sinful heart that actually is more enamored with God's gifts than with God. You want happiness more than you want the source of happiness. And God knows this. He's he's smart. He knows that if all he did was continue to bombard us with blessings, we would become so enamored with the blessings we would forget him entirely. It's why he kicks his people out of the garden and puts a curse on the whole world. And so you have this, this tension. On the one hand, God promises to you perfect and complete blessing, but on the other hand, he doesn't give it to us here and now. And he often takes us through terrible pain and sorrow. And as we experience suffering, as we experience disappointment, as we experience the frustrations of this world, we begin to say, oh, is there something more? And at that time, your heart and Satan's whispers come hand in hand, and he says, oh, there is a better way. I can do more for you than your God will ever do. And I don't understand this. I don't know if there's some influence that that the evil forces actually have, but it seems like to me that when you first start going down the road of following after idols, there actually works. (laughs) There's an initial bump. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. But the problem with these initial good things or positive effects is that they are very short-lived and then in the long run it only deteriorates and you're into greater and greater bondage. You know, hey, you, you do this. Go against God and do this and then you'll be happy. Oh, you do that and Satan doesn't, oh yeah, was, that was a lie, it was wrong. No, he says, oh, we'll do this one then. And you just keep going further and further down the road. You know, if you go back and study the foreign gods throughout the history of uh, mankind, there is a God for every unfulfilled desire. Are you lacking wisdom? We've got a God of wisdom. Are you in need of greater skill? Oh, we've got a craftsman's God. Are you desiring sexual pleasure? Oh, we've got a God for that too. Are you needing greater Fertility in the, in the harvest, that there's greater harvest. Well, we have a God that can help you with that. Security, struggling to bear children, physical health, beauty, doesn't matter. We've got a God for every one of them. And even though our culture does not tend to actually call them gods, they tell you all the time, chase after this, give your devotion to this, and you will be happy. Leave God, he only wants to make you miserable, and chase after other things. Do you think our churches would be empty if people actually believed that God was the source of all true happiness? The world is convinced that there's a better way out there. Go chase after it. 
And as Christians, even though we formally put away our foreign gods, all you would never admit in this uh, uh, openly among us, oh, I'm seeking after this God, you would never admit that. But in your heart, you continually struggle to seek after your desires apart from submission and obedience to God. This is why Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, it could be that all these are idolatry, but it certainly is true that covetousness is idolatry. The idea that, oh, covetousness, I want more than what I have. More than what God has given to me. I have to have more. That is idolatry. Now, I can guarantee you that the Colossians, where this was written to, had formally renounced their idolatry, but they were still in a battle with their internal desires. Now, some idolatry uh, is very clear. It takes the form of, like, twistedness and corruption, and, and that's, like, the easiest kind of idolatry to recognize, and you just go, man, that is gross, that is evil, that is bad, i got to get rid of that. And that's, that's true. But there are some forms of idolatry that play on good desires. And these are the ones that are far more difficult to recognize in your own heart. You've heard me say before, Calvin's comment, that our hearts are idol factories. Do you love your spouse? Your heart is capable of making your spouse an idol. Do you find fulfillment in your work? Your career? Do you enjoy your home? Your family? Your friends? Do you enjoy your health? Your accomplishments? Your beauty? Those are all good things. Do you enjoy fellowship with other believers? Do you enjoy your pastor? Do you enjoy your community? It really does not matter. Anything in your life you can make an idol. Now how do we do this? How do, how does it, where do, how do we go from the good and wonderful enjoyment of a good gift that God's given us to be received with thanksgiving and thankfulness... How do, we, how do we go from that to turning it into an idol? I'm going to give you two ways. There could be more. Number one, your heart incessantly wants more. Maybe your spouse is not everything that you want him to be. Do you have to manipulate and nag and twist to try to get that spouse to be who he's supposed to be or she? Or do you find the good and enjoy that? Understanding that the ultimate good will not be experienced until you experience it with Christ as your eternal groom. You see, whenever you take something that is good and then seek to find ultimate good in it, you're beginning to construct an idol. 
Dan said very nicely that it was pretty beautiful up there yesterday in the mountains. It ain't nothing like it's going to be in the new heavens, new earth. The second way is we begin to believe that our happiness depends on the good that we have received rather than on God alone. You know, you know what this is like. You experience something good. You've experienced hard things in life, so when you experience something good, what's the first thing you start doing? You begin to be afraid that somehow that good would be taken from you. Uh, can we say fear, anxiety? And God does take good things away from us. Not just because it's an idol already, but because it could become an idol. And because he wants to be everything to you. Idolatry begins to care more about the loss that we experience than continuing to wait upon God as the source of all that is good. You know what Job's wife said to him. Curse God and die. And Job continued to wait upon God. You see, when it comes to these sorts of idols that are in our hearts, that are of good things, I really believe that we need God to expose them. We would never expose them on our own. And I want to be careful here because I don't think that God is just about exposing idols all the time. He's got plenty of purposes other than exposing idols that, that move him to actually bring his children through suffering and pain. So there's lots of things going on. But one purpose and one that, that's our focus today is that God is helping you to see the idols of your heart. He's not being mean-spirited He's just drawing you to himself. When he takes his people through pain and heartache and and robs from them something that was good in their lives and they're thinking, why would you do this, Lord? He's actually graciously drawing them to himself. Helping us to loosen our grip on this life and to think of eternity. It's what's happening. And we usually don't recognize it until afterwards. So I want to just kind of finish this this text here and, and look at Jacob's life because I think God has done this in Jacob's life. First off in verse 5, as Jacob obeys God and worships God, God protects him. See, the very act of worship makes you vulnerable. And Jacob has enemies all around him, and God says, make an altar and worship me. He could have been taken out just as he's worshiping God. Many of you fear that as you worship God, someone may come and take you out, as our world is more and more hating Christians. But God protects Jacob as he worships him. <clears throat> Look at verse 8. Deborah, 
Rebekah's nurse died. She was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alon Bakuth. And as I read verse 8, I just my first reaction was, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Who, what do we need to know about Rebecca's nurse for? How does that have to, anything to do with putting away idols? This is the only mention of Deborah by name. Surely Jacob loves Deborah. Her mention of her is surely to give her honor, but more than honoring Deborah, Jacob weeps. That's what Alon Bakuth means. It's oak of weeping. And I have to ask the question, for whom is Jacob weeping? Could be that he's just weeping for Deborah, but we haven't even had a mention of Deborah ever. It is more likely that Jacob is weeping for Rebekah. You see, Jacob loved Rebekah, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Remember, they're the ones that conspired together to get the blessing. She sends him away out of fear that he would be killed. But her intention is that Jacob would be brought back, and they would be brought back in safety, and Jacob and Rebekah would be able to enjoy some amount of life in this world. And what do we find out? Rebecca dies before Jacob even gets back. He never sees her again. Now, you could just say, oh, that's not important. Who cares? Whatever. Just go on with the story. Or you could say, oh, man, what would it feel like for me if God took the son that I loved and I never got a chance to see them again? Now, I'm assuming Rebecca is with the Lord, knows him. Indications that she was a a true covenant child with faith. She already lost Esau as he walked away from the faith. And she never sees Jacob again. Do you think that exposed some idols in her heart? I don't know what she did. Was she at first angry with God? What kind of things went on in her life? Jacob, too, is dealing with the same thing. He comes back and he never sees his mother again. That's heartache. That's difficulty. And he weeps over that. Rightly so. Some people say, oh, Jacob's just getting, Jacob and Rebecca are getting what God wants to stick them to because of their scheming early on. Or it could be God graciously exposing their idols and drawing them to himself. Look at verses 9 through 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. Oh, Jacob's not sticking it to, I mean, God is not sticking it to Jacob. He's blessing him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him Bethel. 
Most of this is, is just a reiteration of the same promises of blessing that were given to Jacob before. But what I want you to see in verse 15 is that Jacob has this pillar set up. He pours out a drink offering on it and pours oil on it. And again, you might say, what does that have to do with anything? It is Jacob experiencing thankfulness and joy. So rather than Jacob being bitter at God for never allowing him to see his mother again, he responds in thankfulness and joy and casts himself once again on the promises of God given to him. Does that mean he doesn't weep? No. At the one hand, he is weeping for the loss in his life. On the other hand, because he's a member of the covenant, he goes back to those promises and he finds thankfulness and joy. This is where you want to be. You experience pain. You experience loss. It's okay to weep for that. It's okay to be honest with God and just weep before him. At the same time, you have been given covenant promises. And in the experience of loss, go back to God. Thank him for who he is, his faithfulness to you in his covenant promises, and respond to him with thankfulness and joy. If we could have a, like a, a list of every moment of Jacob's life, on the one hand, you could think that he is just utterly cursed by God because of all the hard things he's experienced. On the other hand, you could say he is full of blessing. Both of those things are occurring throughout Jacob's lives, and it's the same thing that's happening in your life. What is it that enables you to believe that God is being faithful and good to you? It is nothing less than the promises of God in Scripture given to you in Jesus Christ. That's what keeps you from chasing after idols. So how do we fight idols? You should cultivate a sense of God's love for you. You should be reading the Bible looking to see how God has loved his people over and over again. That he is a good giver to his people. Second, you should just recognize it's a lifelong struggle against your idols. It's okay. We all deal with them. You should also recognize that searching your heart and trying to put away idols is a necessary preparation for worship. You should also trust that when you experience pain and loss, that God could be working to purge you of your idols. But in the midst of it, don't think that he's being harsh or he's some kind of you know, mean God. He, he actually is preparing you for greater glory. So in conclusion, may we be able to say with the psalmist, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Brothers and sisters, I want you to strive with me to put away every idol 
and to wait upon our good and gracious God. He is faithful. He is the source of all true blessing. Amen.